0: Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, Range and Livestock Specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. Welcome back to The Art of Range. My guests today are Graham Hand and Kevin Muno. Uh, Graham is a rancher in Australia and a consultant and an instructor with Holistic Management International and I think the Savory Institute. And Kevin is a rancher in Southern California and works with other ranches on improving landscape function. I'm going to let them introduce themselves in just a minute, but I want to start by addressing some criticism that may come... Uh, from some listeners for having anyone associated with Alan Safery on the podcast. Uh, First, I want to say that my goal with The Art of Range is to explore ideas, and holistic management is an idea that has had an outsized influence on at least North American and Australian ranchers, and for that reason alone deserves a hearing. Uh, Second, as I understand it, holistic management is a decision-making framework, not a narrowly defined grazing method. And I've seen quite a few ranches in the inland northwest with various flavors of holistic management applied, Uh, and I have yet to see very many wagon wheel grazing patterns, but I have seen improved animal distribution, longer growth periods where plants are not perpetually pruned by cows, and probably most importantly, a lot of attention paid to continual improvement. Uh, Don Nelson was WSU's extension beef specialist uh, for a long time. He's now deceased, but he liked to say that you can't manage what you don't measure. And I, I think he might have gotten that from Peter Drucker, uh, but I would modify it a little bit for a natural environment. You don't manage well what you don't give your attention to. And regular observation is a kind of qualitative measuring, even if it's not recorded or measured directly. And the holistic management practitioners that I've known are constantly thinking about what the cows are eating and where and when and why, and asking themselves what are the results in terms of uh, cover at the plant soil interface, species composition, animal health, and other secondary effects like wildlife habitat. You know, are there more songbirds here than there were 20 years ago? And uh, third, Uh, This is a a soapbox itch that I've been needing to scratch for a while. The older I get, the more I become a big tent person. If anybody thinks they have the corner on scientific truth in the world of rangelands, then they're not a good scientist. We need to make room for a a wide range of opinions, recognizing that most opinions are related to real-world experience, and particularly in an applied synthetic discipline like rangeland grazing – we need to be slow to condemn ideas about practices that somebody else has seen work. So somebody says, um, the research shows that elk won't mix with cattle. They stay spatially segregated. But then you see elk cows and beef cows grazing together in a single mob or in patches of animals that are close enough to smell each other. And this supposed truth or you know natural law falls apart, at least in that context. And the entire history of science is littered with surprising discoveries, many of them much more important than whether bovines and cervines mix. And these often come from directions we don't expect. Uh, So I have strong relationships with ranchers whose land and livelihoods have been greatly helped by the planning and management guided by what is usually called holistic management. I think it's a, a great term. And by definition it's fitting for rangelands and grazing. You know, at face value, holistic means looking at the big picture, and then the next bigger picture, and the picture another spatial or temporal scale out from there. And that is a healthy impulse and it's scientifically sound. And if the conclusions that we make from that from that consideration and decision making have bad results, then we do something different. And I have relationships with people who think that holistic management is a bunch of hooey. (laughs) And I guess I'm a proud hybrid, somebody who's trying to keep one foot in the real world where ideas have physical consequences, and one foot in academia where people should be thinking outside of the box and trying on and testing new ideas about how things work and why. Uh, But those two worlds don't always see eye to eye, and I actually don't think that's a big problem. So I don't have much relationship history with Graham, but I, I have some reliable reconnaissance that indicates he's the right person to go with me on an initial dive into regenerative grazing and how to test the results of that, uh, of, of whatever that is. Kevin and I don't go way back either, but he's trying some new things at scale and seeing whether they work and somebody's got to do it. Uh, so, gentlemen, I apologize for the longer-than-usual introduction here, but I I wanted to get my cards on the table so that if you're both crazy, I warned everyone, and if you're onto something, then maybe I prepared people to listen who would otherwise be closed-minded. Uh, so, Graham and Kevin, uh, welcome, and thank you for your patience.
1: Thanks, Tip. Good to be
2: here. Great to be here, Tip. Thank you.
0: Uh, Graham, let's start with introducing you. Uh, what is your background, and uh, what is it that you mostly spend your days doing right now?
1: Yeah, well, thanks, Tip. Um, my background is I trained as a as a scientist um, and became an industrial chemist in my early twenties, and um, and then did a lot of things, but ended up uh, doing a lot of quality assurance and. Um, you had know, total quality control all through the 80s and then, um, went back to ranching in the early 90s and, uh, trained with Alan Savory in the mid 90s. Um, and, you know, then sort of went and worked in our Department of Agriculture, worked for our, on our beef grading system in Australia, um, and continued to work. So I'm a member of both the Savory Institute. And holistic management international, and um, yeah, so that's about it at the moment. I'm setting up a demonstration uh, ranch farm in East Land in southeastern Australia, and the um, uh, and just sort of uh, implementing what we talk about. Great,
0: uh, Kevin. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about who you are and what you're doing?
2: Awesome, Tip. And thanks again. Great to be here. I'm a first-generation rancher. I uh, started ranching in 2016. So I um, haven't been at it too long, but I've been involved in the regenerative agriculture uh, industry, you could say, since about 2013. And uh, I graduated from from business school at university of San Diego. So I have a business background that was back in 2010. I'm 36 years old and about uh, three years ago, uh, we bought a, uh, a cattle company uh, with some investors here in San Diego, uh, California. And we've been um, operating that again, uh, since 2020. So in the middle of the pandemic, we raised a little bit of money and bought a, a fourth generation cattle company that was, going through some transition both um patriarch and and son had tragically passed away and uh they were selling the company and so was lucky enough to be front in line to uh kind of get a chance at that and uh had enough confidence from some of my previous uh endeavors in the space to uh to go full on and buy that company so we we bought uh 280 cow calf pairs um or Angus Hereford crosses or black Baldies, and we, with the with the purchase of the company, got access to about sixteen thousand acres of of land here in Southern California across two leases. So one's on a water district property, which is pretty interesting. That's an eight thousand acre lease. It's a fun conversation around uh, water with them and how the soil surface uh, affects water. They uh, they own the ranch to. Uh, uh, land bank essentially, and, and the whole ranch drains into a, a reservoir, which supplies about 20% of the water to a pretty big city. And then the other property is actually federal land, which is uh, fun too, uh, to work with their team over there, um, and the ecologists over there, because their main concern is uh, the Endangered Species Act. And so we've been managing that 8,000 acres too, which is on a pretty big military base It actually borders Camp Pendleton which is another uh, about 100,000 acres of rangeland, which is pretty rare in Southern California. You don't think Southern California and think ranching. But uh, at one point, right, a lot of this was rangeland. Still is quite a bit of rangeland in California, just not too much in Southern California. You think more Central and Northern California when you think rangeland. So uh, past three years, we've started a direct-to-consumer business called Perennial Pastures we're in uh, 14 farmers markets. Um, We sell online, direct to doorstep nationwide. Business has grown really well. It's been a great year for us. The reception has been amazing to uh, work with customers that really care about soil health and nutrient density and food. So Graham and I teamed up uh, going on about six years ago. Um, I used to work at Rumiano Cheese and I brought him out to look at the dairy ecosystem out there on the North coast of uh, California. And we really kind of cut our teeth and he taught me everything I know about landscape function grazing. So that's been really fun to work with him and be able to uh, um, just really kind of sink my teeth into somebody who's been, uh, been really, I think transformational in this space as far as uh, risk mitigation and, and, and looking at the soil surface and, really being concerned with ranchers being successful doing this type of grazing. So it's been fun. We formed uh, another consulting company called uh, landscape function management. And we have a little, small little practice here in the States that we're launching currently. And part of that, we wanted to reach out to podcasts and let people know what we do. And, you know, we have a website and we think it's a bit different from some of the other folks that are out there. So super excited for this com- conversation to kind of introduce, um, you know what? Uh, what Graham and I have been doing for 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 some time. So, thanks again for having us.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's fascinating. Part of what I like about grazing is that there's no two situations that are the same. Seemingly, uh, you know, in in the Western U.S. and and even in places like across Australia, you've got such a wide, you've got a wide range of environmental conditions and ecosystem types and plant communities and uh, land ownership land tenure arrangements and grazing practices that there's there's no end to the things to think about and talk about uh, maybe maybe a good place to start Graham is is the term regenerative agriculture it seems to be the new buzzword that has maybe replaced sustainable agriculture you know buzzwords by their very nature experience, fading meaning over time. And sustainability was probably never a very good term anyway. Uh, Nathan Sayre said once that anything that persists could be called sustainable, but that's not really what we mean (laughs) when we say the word. Uh, So I'm a little bit afraid that regenerative is in grave danger of being the next buzzword that has very little meaning, at least not very specific meaning. Uh, And I would say that it's somewhat associated with holistic management. Uh, So I said a whole lot of stuff in the introduction, uh, including an attempt at a definition about holistic management being a decision-making framework. Uh, so uh, I'm interested in, in how you would define regenerative agriculture first, uh, and then maybe secondly, holistic management.
1: Yeah, thanks, Tim. The, um, we have a, um, a scientifically valid definition of regenerative agriculture, so in total. So what we use, and I had to use this when I started working with our departments of agriculture, um, I had to find a way of talking about um, what I was doing that was actually peer-reviewed. And luckily in in Australia we had uh, David Tongway and Norm Hindley developed a, a soil surface monitoring process called Landscape Function Analysis. Uh, which is published and peer-reviewed, so that I could then point to that is this is what I'm trying to do. So what is the, the science of soil surfaces? So my definition says that money and people, so people's wellbeing and financial health is nested within a regenerating landscape, which is defined by increasing landscape function. So you can, each one of those is auditable. Um, So that was really my whole quality assurance science background was trying to, how do we actually get something here that we can say, yes, that's heading in the right direction. Uh, No, that's not heading in the right direction. So, yeah, so it's using that science of landscape function analysis. Um, And I can provide the reference for that if people are interested.
0: But yeah. Can you, can you repeat that definition? I just want to mention that that publication by David Tongway and Norm Henley uh, was produced by CSIRO, which is Australia's National
1: Science Agency, right? Yes, it is. and yeah, In 2004, I believe it was published. Um, I'd have to look it up. I don't keep too many things in my head, I'm afraid. Um, but yeah, so that definition of regenerative is that I used to do the Venn diagram and have money, people, and healthy land, and what I found was that people, if they see that equal-sized circles, they trade one against the other. They don't think about the whole thing functioning, so now money and people are nested within that increasing landscape function, which is sort of the foundation of biodiversity, so um, landscape function tells you if you look at and measure the soil surface, is the land stable or eroding? Is it infiltrating water or and is it cycling nutrients? So it's it's that foundation of biodiversity. So that's what I get people to focus on first. So that's the definition. So uh improving farmer well-being would be my um you yeah, know, rancher and farmer. We use farmer for rancher as well. the um, um, And then increasing profit or, or, you know, like stable or increasing profit, but increasing landscape function and biodiversity. So that's the big circle and those other two are sitting inside it. So, you know, one of the things is that I found that if you actually give that an auditable definition, you can actually go in ex- and sort of um, into a into a ranch and say, Look, this is where you are. These are some possible corrective actions. You know, to do a trial and, and do that. So, yeah. So that's sort of that landscape function. I'll come back to sort of um, my definition of eco-literacy is more like a method or a process. So I'll come back to how that works later. But the um, but then the definition of holistic management. So holistic management framework and the decision-making framework is an attempt to try and work in the complex domain. So, we know that we get lots of unintended consequences when we use expert advice in the complicated domain. So, we need to use a framework that allows us to explore complexity. So, that's what the holistic management framework. So, you know, it's it's sort of you you pick sorry about that, pick a um, what you're trying to achieve and then you see and check whether an action's going to head you in that right direction. But there is no there is no right and wrong answers in complexity and the easiest way I've started to describe it is that the definition of insanity does not apply in complexity because you can't do the same things twice. When you're farming and ranching, yeah, the other lands change, the seasons change, the animals change, you've changed. Everything's changing all the time, so you can only look at trends and dispositions to, in an attempt to sort of um, manage complexity. So, um, so that's that's that whole way we use it. So it's like a, a trend and a which direction you're heading in. So managing complexity is Alan's um great skill so introducing that idea of complexity is what holistic management's about so that we don't end up with unintended consequences from our actions so yeah there's you know people don't have to think very hard yeah you, know, you try and do some things harder and it only gets worse so um you yeah, know trying to try to increase production at all costs um hasn't worked and uh you know, and some of those things that I'd like to discuss in detail a little bit further on. Yeah,
0: thank you, Kevin. How how would you define those things uh, if if you were answering in your own words?
2: Well, you know, as a company, we've adopted uh, really, you know, the definition that that Graham's put forth. Um, you know, it's 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 audible, auditable. You know, the the ecosystem health is driven by landscape function. Um, and how healthy the soil surface is, which again, as Graham alluded to, leads to biodiversity and all sorts of other benefits. And then, yeah, it's got to be profitable, and the people have to be happy. So he didn't go into too much detail, you know, about the people side of things. But my wife's a clinical psychologist, and there are definitely auditable ways of, you know, assessing if somebody's happy or not. But usually, you know, one simple tried and true question is to you know, see if the kids want to go into agriculture afterwards, you know, so, uh, if they <laughs> that's do- <laughs> the acid
0: test, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: If they want to do it, then it's probably a good thing. You know, and probably people are happy and, you know, they're making money. So, um, certainly I think the profit side is a, is a super interesting conversation too, with, with all the tools that we have today from Shopify for e-commerce to, uh, you know, social media to farmers markets um, I think going direct and, and owning your vertical within agriculture is an important thing. So certainly that's not part of the definition, but it's involved in the profit discussion. So that's where we're headed kind of as a company, you know, and as a group really with landscape function management and perennial pastures. And Graham's going to get a meat business going over there too. He's got one, he's made some sales. He doesn't have an online presence yet, but we're a collective and we're pushing that forward. So again, it's all about results. We we are involved in the um, Uh, through perennial pastures a certification body called Regenified and that's owned by uh, uh, Gabe Brown and his partners and so they've kind of put forth uh, their definition and we're hoping to uh, instill more landscape function analysis foundation into that as well because as you probably know and your listeners probably know rangelands are highly variable and when you get to the sort of landscapes that we're managing and want to manage in the future. You know, the really long, uh, the really long you know, large properties um, in um, uh, Australia, the big stations, you know, some of the biggest uh, stations in the world or ranches in the world, and then the big ranches of the West. It's really hard to quantify those, you know, at landscape scale. The beauty that we have now is things like hyperspectral imagery. And, you know, there's another paper that CSIRO published that, you know, we can manage and monitor landscape function from space now, which is great. So I think that uh, that is what we're hoping to sort of influence some of these uh, other regenerative certifications that are out there because it is a fast growing movement and uh, the consumers want to know really what's behind it. And you know, as ranchers to start, we want to know, I got into ranching just because I have a love for the environment and making the world a better place. And I think there's no better way to do it at scale than ranching. So I want to know that, you know, we're having success with it. And landscape function analysis is one of the best ways that I've seen to do it and also train people doing it because it's direct feedback. What are we doing as a rancher? We're managing that soil surface and the litter cover and the basal area of perennial grasses and you know, how, how, you know, severely we're grazing and how long we recover. So I know that was probably a bit more than you asked for, but, uh, that's, you know, very, very consistent with what Graham's already said. Just a few other things to mention on that.
0: No, I think that's right. And, uh, I feel like we're at a, at a, a bit of a, a turning point in terms of, uh, both, both the direction of livestock agriculture, as well as the general public's perception of livestock agriculture you know we've had a lot of reaction at least in this country to grazing practices from 100 years ago 150 years ago that caused degradation you know where there were denuded landscapes and soil loss and um and you know these things as you say this is a this is a a complex domain, and a lot of those problems were as much related to how we handle money as they were misunderstandings about how to manage livestock. Uh, it's not at all simple, uh, but you know, if if we got say we got ten range folks on the line here, we might get twenty five definitions of of what overgrazing is, uh, and I'm I'm curious. Uh, maybe from you, Graham, what would you say, you know, we're, we're trying to define grazing that has uh, a, a spiraling up effect, you know, where you have a positive feedback loop instead of a negative feedback loop. Uh, but what does it look like? What well, if, if somebody asked you, what is, how would you define overgrazing? What does grazing look like that causes degradation?
1: What would you say? Yeah, it's it's pretty clear that um, overgrazing is eating the leaf of perennial grasses that is regrown from the root reserves. So if the plant hasn't recovered its root reserves from a previous grazing and you graze it again, you actually uh, are overgrazing. So it's not. There's a lot of confusion between utilization of the range. And overgrazing of the range, utilisations can be very, very, um, you know, very heavy. And I think that um, uh, high utilisation is important to clear growth points and stimulate germination of other perennial grasses. And that's different from then coming back quickly. I never see people fail from staying too long unless if they're moving the animals, if they're set stop, they do. But if they're moving the animals, they never stay too long. They always come back too quick. Um, there's probably some people in the world, but I've never met them, that, that overgraze from staying too long. Um, so, yeah, so clear definition. So I, I have a definition of when is a perennial grass recovered because in um, landscape function that perennial grass basal area, and the, the you know, about – 50% of your nutrient cycling is driven by the uh, perennial grass basal area and the other 50% by decomposing litter in the intertussic space. So what we're just trying to do is, is have a definition that allows people to increase landscape function. So I've used part of Alan Savory. I trained with Alan in the mid-90s and it just changed my whole career and outlook on life. Um, so, but the definition is the first part's alum's, when it looks like an ungrazed plant, and it so it's ready to be regrazed. And I've just added to that when it looks like an ungrazed plant and contains fresh yellow litter, because it's the litter that provides the ground cover and the decomposing litter in the intertussic space. So at its at its simplest, you could describe landscape function as uh increasing perennial grass basal area and density with decomposing litter in the intertussic space. There's more to it than that. But yeah, that's the big things. And that's what we're sort of measuring and controlling um, with our management.
0: Yeah, I like that definition. Uh then I guess the, the flip side of that is what what would proper grazing
1: look like? Yeah, this is this is really um, this is where the arguments start. So people <laughs> <laughs> people will fight to the death over this. So what I say to people, what I say to people is that if you accept that increasing landscape function, in my definition of regenerative grazing or regenerative agriculture, um, is correct then the way the next step is to implement about five what I call and I've got from uh, Dave Snowden from Kinefen, I call them safe-to-fail trials. Now, there's a reason why the fail is in there. So if you have five, you want trial one and trial five to be at the outer limits and you want them to be failing. Other people I notice are calling them safe-to-try um which i i don't mind but the whole idea we don't have a um it might be a social thing but when i work in the states i i switch it to safe to dry because you want some of them to to fail so you know and people go why do i want to do a trial that fails because what you're trying to do is explore the tendency of your land so these isn't to find an answer it's to find out how does my land respond to the three grazing levers of, of stock density, utilization and recovery. So I've tried to simplify that down to the, I just saying you know, recovery drives a lot of um, you know, the regrowth and the litter and the health of the plant and basal area. You know, stock density gives you uh, germination of the perennial grass seed bank and utilisation clears growth points and stops perennial grasses dying from choking themselves out and provides light to stimulate the germination of the seed bank. So I I just try and keep to those things. So, my definition of sort of this eco-literacy for farmers is, you know, understanding landscape function, implementing your own trials on your land because there's there's something else happens when you do it yourself with your own animals um, that you actually go, oh, okay, that's actually what works for me and then from there expand that you know, slowly and profitably onto more and more of the landscape. So it's actually like a a loop of a process. So it's using um, Ellen's framework and then including a clear definition of landscape function and a clear idea of do not adopt something till you can do it at a small scale. So I see people failing at a small scale and then expanding it. Whereas I say, no, no, learn to do it at that at that scale first. And that's what uh, that uh, safe-to-fail trials is about.
0: Did I read somewhere that that term came from uh, a, a technology domain rather than natural
1: resources? Yeah, it did. So um, the Kinefin Company, which is a Welsh word, uh, C-Y-N-E-F-I-N, is started by a um, a. a Professor Dave Snowden. So, in, in the world, he I believe he's one of the experts on complexity. And what he did was he, he says that if you've got things that are simple and clear, then you can, you know, it's just best practice. If you've got things that are complicated, you've got to get an expert like tax or insurance or um, some of our medicine. But if you're working in the complex domain where you have where you're managing things, basically, so so uh, people and money and the environment, your know, economies and the environment, then you need to find out how it works. So you've actually got to do a trial to see how this works, and you don't adopt until um, you know that it's heading you in the right direction. So he's got an expression where he says more more of that, less of this. So if one of the trials isn't going where you wanted it to go, then you do less of it and you dampen that. But the things that are going well, you amplify them. And you do that in a controlled, steady way because, as everyone knows, agriculture punishes rapid change. So you've got to actually be able to do that in a stage thing. So he got that from – he was involved in the computer programming and worked for IBM. And uh, then he's done a lot of work, um, you know, with the U.S. government and uh, all around the world. Uh, he works in health. He works in all those complex domains.
0: Yeah, and, and that assumes that we have something by which to evaluate success. And you're saying that's landscape function. Is that right? Yes,
1: yes, that's correct. Yeah, as well as the people and, and the money.
0: Yeah, yeah. How would you define functional landscapes? Or what are the indicators of that?
1: So, in in a grassland um, and grassy woodlands, and even in forests and bushes, we'd say in Australia, you know, you, you have um, you have increasing basal area of the perennial species, and then you have decomposing litter in the between the perennial species. So in in a Grazing system, you're basically looking at the perennial grasses and then the litter out of those perennial grasses decomposing in the intertussic space. So basically you're sheet composting over the whole landscape but you're growing the material, the litter that you're going to compost in situ. So that that's easy in a grassland, uh, in forests and in grassy woodlands, Um I've worked sort of uh, all over the states Brazil Somaliland Mongolia sort of and and it's very very consistent that in these environments you need 100% ground cover comprising perennial plants and decomposing litter. So that's that's the sort of the target in in cropping um do you know, I think that Gabe Brown's soil armour that he introduced into that sort of regenerative cropping um, is the best uh, best description and most people have heard of, you know, soil armour. Uh, I'm a friend of Gabe's, so he's come over here and we had a great time over in Australia doing workshops and stuff. But I feel like it needs to be not only described as soil armour, it's also got to be described as decomposing soil armor because it's that decomposing that switches this litter, the plant material, from being an inhibitor of growth and a harbour of um, uh, pasture grubs and insects and slugs and things to being something that's that's powerfully uh, uh, regenerating the soil. So the soil armor needs to be decomposing sort of to use the – the understanding act definition
0: yeah, yeah no this is this is interesting for uh, for anybody who wonders these things are not scripted I'm literally feeling things out as we go so i'm I'm just sitting here thinking that uh, this is not new to you that in much of the western United States, especially west of the Rocky Mountains, we have a, a wintertime precipitation pattern where during the growing season we have some soil moisture but very little surface moisture during the active growing season for plants and in many places uh, including where i live the above ground biomass is low enough that it's it's difficult to get much litter cover even even with say summer grazing after seed shatter on cured out plants and so uh, it seems like there's not a lot of Litter decomposition here, since when the litter is wet, it's too cold for biological decomposition. So, it, you know, in theory, you would think that uh, we could create more litter somehow, say, for by increasing the trample to graze ratio with really high stock density. Uh, but I, I haven't seen that work in practice. But having just recently been in Australia, I know that quite a bit of that land is is quite dry during the times when the plants are actively growing. And and there are plenty of places where you have semi-arid rangelands that don't have a lot of per acre forage production. Um uh, what yeah, what does it what does it look like to try to and I think most people would agree that the the limiting factor in many of those ecosystems is nutrients, not even so much water. Because you know, you get just a little bit of additional nitrogen through whatever means, and it it makes a difference even with the same amount of rainfall. Uh, so how do we how do we graze in a way that uh, that I don't know if amplifies the right word, but optimizes nutrient cycling and and allows litter decomposition in an environment that's really dry or cold and and you don't have uh you don't have moisture and heat at the same time usually
1: yeah, so um there's a lot of areas um in Australia that are very similar, but usually we complain about too hot for for most things so <laughs> uh, not, not, not enough moisture so this is really um this is really where i sort of focus on taking people is that you've got to discover this on your own land, in your own situation, and you can't have people sort of describing things to you. So um, I've, got, I've got videos of changing um, areas in Somaliland, uh, you know, right up there in the top horn of Africa, you know, down to that sort of below 10 inches of rain and, you know, incredible evaporation. So all I get people to do is that if something will grow, grow some biomass and then trample it at that ultra-high stock density because you don't you don't want to wait 10 years for a result. Most people want to get a result in of what's happening within 12 months. And so what I then do is get them to start with as much biomass as they have Trample it onto the soil and leave it for twelve months. And I and then look at what's happened. I've got a lot of data on sites that have been grazed like that. And from there we can sort of start to solve, well, what should we try next? So at least one of the sites, yeah, you can do, you know, we do a lot of research on three months, six months, nine months, twelve months, fifteen months. But in some of those environments, those low production environments, it could be 24 months. The um, the, the Mexicans are getting onto this in Chihuahua. Um, you know, I know it's different and things like that, but it's very, you know, in the Chihuahuan desert. So it's very low production. And they're able to get this 100% ground cover with decomposing litter. Um so it's really starting to do your own trials but you've got to push the boundaries. We have no pr- we have no problem um discovering things by accident by pushing the boundaries in conventional agriculture. We did a lot of work at the research station that I was at on um you know sort of tripling the fertilizer and seeing what happens. But I find it people find it really difficult to to sort of go for extended recoveries and um, when they'd get upset I used to say I was in an area that they also had pine plantations and I go everyone knows that the profit point for a pine plantation in this environment is 30 years but I if I suggest that the profit point for a grassland is 12 months everyone's horrified so I say don't don't listen to people. Do your trials, but try and find the outer limit. A lot of those um, very low production environments, it could be twenty four months. But don't worry about that because you're not saying that's what I'm going to do. You're just trying to do the um, the discovery. I, I always go for the Mythbusters. Do you know? if it If that bomb doesn't work, get a bigger bomb and see what does work, but keep going until you can actually go, "Ah, oh, yes, I can make it work now, what does that mean in terms of my business?" But I try and get people to do that before they change anything Broadacre. I want them to be involved, and in, you know they're learning landscape function, they're solving their own issues. So a lot of people will ring me up and say, oh, you know, I've got, I've got this weed, Graham. Can you come and have a look? And I go, well, yo, know, I don't think that's going to work because all we'll do is I'll say this is the cause and you'll say that is the cause. Put in some safe to fail trials and I'll come in six months. And then a lot of the time they ring up quite sheepishly after six months and say, oh, don't worry about coming, Graham, yo. Know, I know what the cause is now. So a lot of those annual Forby um, weeds will drop out um, just because they're starting to give it more recovery and replacing the annual Forby types with the perennial types, and they've germinated them with the high stock density. So it's really this is the secret, I believe, for our future is how can I rapidly uh restore landscape function and biodiversity on my land and soil health. I think it's, I think it's as you said, it's, we're at a turning point. I think it's very exciting. Uh, we're starting to get momentum. When I, when I first started talking about this in Australia in the mid-'90s, I had to pay people to listen to me and now they're paying me to come and help them. And it's really about not being the expert and saying this is what this land is It's giving them some design principles for safe to fail and that training in landscape function and then assistance with implementation because there really is some significant barriers. Once you discover this, you've got to then start addressing those, you know, you've got infrastructure. I don't see water as being as big an issue as it used to be. I don't recommend cell centres anymore. I go for strips uh, with portable water. Animal phenotypes is a really big issue. The animals have been selected, uh, for performance on either young grass or feeding. And, you know, we're trying to then get them to eat fully recovered grass with fresh litter to produce our landscape function. And the, the cow energy value would be, um, is a really big issue. Um, that just how much energy they need. And then the other thing, without supplementing them, getting room and stability uh, means that it's a a seven-day-a-week job. So what we've been talking about here in the demonstration is doing more like a a rolling roster of flying, fly out. So, you know, this isn't easy and I do it. So um, I had nine weeks, seven days, (laughs) seven days a week till last week. And, you know, I just go, oh, my God, you know, this is just hard, Yaka. Um, you know, it was during carving. it was all that sort of stuff. And if, if you're doing it, it stops you from over-promoting it. But I've been saying if you're not prepared to put in, learn about landscape function, put in safe-to-fail trials, change your infrastructure, select, you know, a breeding enterprise with one mob and um, different phenotypes and be prepared to how you're going to handle the seven days a week. I wouldn't start. So that's what I say. I keep doing what you're doing and then I usually finish with I hope I'm not overselling it. So um yeah, so very realistic, very practical, it will work, but it, it is not easy.
0: So I really like the idea of 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 trials and and the terminology safe to fail trial. You know do something crazy and see what happens, but in a small enough area that it's not a fatal error for the ranch, and then do something ridiculously crazy and see what happens and and just track it. I think we have this impulse. We want to have everything figured out ahead of time and then implement uh, a fail-safe plan instead of doing fail-to-safe trials. Yep. <clears throat> but, but we often don't know. Because every situation is different. And, and as you said, every year is different.
1: Yeah. I, I, I just think it, it sort of takes the pressure off you. So I'm working with people that are, you know, the, the ranch has been leased out and they're taking it over in five years and i go you need to be an expert and they want to do regenerative grazing i just say you've got to be an expert by the time you take it over and you've got to demonstrate to your parents and your siblings that you actually know what you're doing so it's not a talking it's about doing um and so i just say look don't talk about this you know It's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking rather than think your way into a new way of acting. I got that from Jerry Stern and um, uh, I've forgotten the name of the company. Um, It's called Fast Company. Um, And, you know, so it's that. You've actually got to do things and then see how it responds and then adjust from there. But you've got to have everyone's confidence and you need to be able to show that you know. So I've been saying to people, when I rock up and I say, um, what recovery does your land need or what's the range of recoveries your land needs, I want you to be able to show me the evidence because a lot of people say, oh, I think it's this or I think it's that or whatever. I go, show me. Don't tell me, show me. um, And it's not about beliefs or a mindset. It's actually about Practical on-ground change that you can actually demonstrate and show people.
0: No, I think that's good. Uh, what would you suggest for specific ways of measuring landscape function, say on a ranch?
1: Well, there is a um, in in the material that David Tongway has, and I can provide the link to all the material. There is there is a uh, the scientifically um, valid. Measurement. So the way the full landscape function is measured with a transect and you, you run out of tape and you have got to get three repeats of all the different, um, you know, patches and interpatches and you run it downhill, um, because that's the way, you know, nutrients and water tends to move. So, you know, so, the, and then you can actually go through and sort of uh, measure it in, in certain areas um, so that you actually get a valid result that it goes into a spreadsheet and punches out the numbers so as soon as i saw the landscape function and um, started talking to david tongway i realized that you could do this and develop an expert system for this because it's actually uh, produces a number for water infiltration nutrient cycling and stability so i really liked that that worked for me i I've worked on different models. Um, our you know, our beef eating quality meat standards Australia produces numbers and I really liked it. And it was really um it was really this whole predictive modelling that sort of worked for me. And so yeah, and then you're just assessing basically over over each meter, you know, or, or each yard what Uh, how much under the tape is covered with perennial grass basal area uh, or is bare ground or is decomposing litter and then you feed those results into the spreadsheet and and it produces a result. It was developed in the rangelands in Australia, which I know you've been to, Tip, recently uh, up at Broome and out to five hours out, so just a jaunt out into the countryside. Um, And... um, yeah, so it was developed in those areas, so it flattens out pretty quickly. So um, if you're managing well, you'll be hitting the top numbers for landscape function pretty quickly. And David and I have talked about how we could uh, fund getting it so that it actually starts to really work in high landscape functioning grasslands. But I have not seen anywhere that the target shouldn't be um, at least 10% perennial grass basal area, and 90% decomposing litter in the intertussic space. So that's what I've been saying is an early target um, because you know then that the stability is very good, the nutrient cycling is very good, and the water infiltration is very good, and, you know, you get all those temperature ameliorations and um, stable sort of situations that allows you to build something from there.
0: Yeah, and I would say there's a lot of a pretty solid and recent research in the states indicating that uh, things like the basal area are really reliable indicators. Because one one of the dangers of measuring canopy, for example, is that it's it's both it's sensitive to both uh, whether or not it got grazed recently, and it's sensitive to variations in precipitation. And the time of year that you collect the information, but but the basal area, the amount of the soil surface that's occupied by the rooted portion of the plants, uh, is generally fairly stable. And if there's a trend, it's a reliable trend, meaning that it's it's not it's not a a flash in the pan related to you know something that happened recently, whether it was a rainfall event or a grazing event, uh, and that those are highly tied. Both to hydrologic function and to nutrient cycling.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it was, yeah, the science is really clear that basal area and sort of in landscape function, what uh, yeah, Dave Tongway and Norm Hy- Hindley came up with was that it had to be at least two centimeters by two centimeters, or three quarters of an inch by three quarters of an inch. Um, for the base of the plant to be counted because then you knew that it was going to be around for a couple of years. So anything less than that you know, four square centimetres uh, isn't counted. So how much of each acre or hectare is covered with the bases of perennial grasses that are more than uh, four square centimetres? So that's what you're actually counting. And then, yeah, you know, and then you're filling in the rest of the land with um, with uh, decomposing litter, which effectively, um, once it's decomposing and it doesn't wash, you actually uh, it sort of massively reduce any erosion. So we have a problem in Australia that we accept things like 50% bare ground or 70% ground cover in the high rainfall zones. And I just go, what so only thirty percent of the land's eroding. Do you know, do you think that's regenerative? You know, It just yeah, you know, so you know, is that gonna save us? I don't think so. So that's what I tend to focus on. So
0: yeah, related to that, there was some there was a a lot of research that was done uh in southern Idaho in response to a big fire several years ago, and it was there was a research team that was prepared for this, and so they did. They had a lot of research projects sitting on go, ready to go when there was a fire. And one of the conclusions from a whole raft of research results from that was that uh, perennial grass density was sort of a, a corollary uh, predictor of resistance to things like invasive annual grass, even separate from – total basal area. So for example, you know, we could have, there's a lot of areas uh, near me that have uh, rangelands with uh, a bunch grass or tussock grass that has not been grazed or burned for a long period of time. And you could have these giant, giant bunches with uh, nearly a meter of bare ground in between them. And most of the plant material is still Held up in the plant crown instead of laying on the soil surface, and so you could have uh, you you could have ten percent basal area, but it's all concentrated in one big bunch, the middle of which is no longer alive. Or you could have ten percent basal area that's spread out among a, a bunch of plants of a variety of age classes, uh, and and those were shown to be in this research, more effective at protecting the soil and competing uh, both above and below ground with undesirable plants than than the large bunches.
1: Yeah, I I agree strongly. So it's about – typically with those situations, we would try and graze it so that we covered the soil and created the conditions for germination of more perennial grasses between those big big, – Basal areas, and you know, it's it's very, uh, yeah. If I go to a ranch or a farm and they've got a problem with an annual forby sort of weed, I think it's very easy. Um, because you know, once you start managing in a way that promotes the germination and establishment of perennial grasses, then you know it just pushes the weeds out so you know so we don't attack the weeds directly especially those annual forby, uh thistles and um prickly things and then um the the bigger issue i think is up the other end you know from when you're managing with low stock density and you're getting um you know that that switch from grassland to woody weed sort of um situations that that can be harder work um To do, but yeah, the annual forbs are are really interesting and very easy. I also think, yeah, Tip, you were describing that plant with all the litter up in the air. It's incredibly fire prone. You've got suspended dry material with lots of air around it, so you've got, yeah, you've got fuel and you've got oxygen. They go up like a bomb. So,
0: right, and when those plants burn in a cool fire, it licks the top off, and they come back really quick. Uh, but but in the extremely dry season where the current year's growth as well as the previous three, four, five years' growth is all dry, uh, then when that burns, it generates enough heat that it kills the plant crown, and now we don't have anything coming back after the fire, and that's a major problem.
1: Yeah, I agree, and it's sort of like what you were saying um, from what you described when you were in Broome at the Rangelands Conference.
0: I think I've got one more question and then uh, we'll probably go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, I still feel like in a semi-arid environment, it can be difficult to get as much trampling as we want. Uh, in some trials here in a say a 14-inch uh, rainfall zone, I'm not sure what that translates to in terms of millimeters of precipitation, but you know, a semi-arid environment that's just a little bit short of what it would take to begin to grow pine trees, for example. Uh, We applied 100,000 pounds of grazing animal per acre and still did not get as much trampling as we were hoping for. We were assuming that as you approach some threshold in terms of animal density, that trample to graze ratio would begin to shift a bit uh, where the animals aren't just eating stuff and then moving on, but that you would get something getting laid down besides just manure and we didn't get as much trampling as we would like. Uh, what would, what would you say is, is there a different, uh, animal density threshold in different environments or would you say there's some rules of thumb that are halfway reliable in terms of, uh, how much density is necessary, uh, to get more of that trampling with really
1: short-term grazing? Yeah. The, um, this, this is really uh, poorly understood and I always go to David Attenborough's Great Plains videos and sort of get people to look at those. But basically the point that the animal behaviour changes is the density you need. So when I'm training and we're in a room or a hall, what I get is people, I say everyone stand in half of the room, everyone now Harvard it again, Harvard it again, Harvard it again until they're so tight that their behavior starts to change. So people, once they start getting inside their personal space, they get noisier, so they'll start giggling or, you know, making noise and a few people don't like it and they'll, they'll pop out <laughs> of that. They'll pop out of it and I just say to them, if you don't pop back in, you're off to the abattoir. <laughs> so, yeah, so, and okay you've got this is that's the density where the behavior changes so it's yeah. observable but it's very hard to predict and what i find is that as you start to increase density of animals and they're not used to it they'll actually start to behave differently then they get used to it and you have to keep tightening it up but it is at a very high level, but I use the safe to fail trials to discover that as well. So what is the threshold on your land? And it's going to be in those arid and semi arid areas. Um, it's going to be pretty high. So, yeah, you know, like it's, and it may not be manageable commercially, but you will see a threshold over which then everything starts to germinate and, uh, yeah, you know, like I've got uh, uh, Benjamin from Somaliland that he did what I said, and I had to keep him off it and keep talking through it. But twelve months later, it went back to all perennial grass. Um, and you know, so I could I could uh, send that over as well, tip, because I I think once people see it going from desert, do you know, with a few bushes and occasional grass plant to solid perennial grass in twelve months. It changes their view of the world. But Alan Savory had always taught me, well, he taught me about that, about herd effect and animal behaviour and, you know, how it changes at that higher density because he was fortunate enough to see large functioning um, herds of wildebeest and other animals. So, yeah, so there is a point, but it's a discoverable point and it depends what that disposition of the land is. So you've got to discover it for your land but it's generally where you see their behavior change.
0: Yeah, this is probably what I like about various kinds of monitoring, but particularly repeat photography. There was a range ecologist here in central Washington state years ago who said that he had uh he had a colleague who had been really rigorously collecting repeat photographs, you know, where the 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 field of view was Exactly the same. The timing of year was exactly the same. They were really well done, and he said it was unbelievable the amount of change that could happen from year to year in a plant community that you would assume was not dynamic at all. Uh, but the amount of the amount of change—it could it, it look like it was a whole different plant community. And uh, I, I really like your point that you never manage the same landscape twice. Every <laughs> yep. year that you come back, it's it's something new. There's some similarities. I mean, there are depths to bedrock and soil texture and don't change much. But, but still, there's uh, actually a shocking amount of change from year to year in what might seem like an otherwise boring landscape. And um, observation and testing is is always necessary. Uh, you talked about temporary water, and I feel like this is the main limiting factor, at least in most of the Western United States. You know, we have uh, it, it's expensive to provide water in nearly any form. Water is limiting, there's not much surface water, uh, wells are not. At a high density and there's only so many ways to provide water uh, in what ways have you seen what creative ways have you seen people provide temporary water in order to facilitate more creative grazing management
1: yeah so th- there's been some real big changes i've found in thinking on water and people are getting much better with it with solar pumps and things but they they consolidate water pump water points so that they've got a bigger reservoir um Probably the most profitable grazer in Australia that's doing regenerative grazing. They have a dam in each paddock, but they're in an area that that works. The other area they have they they have a stock and domestic allocation out of a um, out of a river, but it, it's somehow it's really the limiting factor. I find um, you know we're using single wire um, electric fencing, which everyone understands and knows, but sort of somewhere that if you can't get water to that area it becomes a really big issue and uh, Kevin's doing some exploration and trials on novel ways of doing that um, but you know it it'll be really uh it'll be the real breakthrough will be if we can put water where we need it so typically we would run you know a backbone of a big a big uh, line and then tap off it so uh, you know, we've got like a three and a half inch line through the middle of the property and then um, tap off that sort of to, to portable and use a combination of above ground and you know, below ground lines to get to the water to where we need it so we don't have a problem with freezing, we have a problem with the water getting too hot with above ground pipe, so uh, yeah. Yeah, Tip, I'll, I'll jump in there um,
2: you know, as a after listening to your uh your your podcast with uh uh mr Uh, dave steckenberg um we uh we had a call with uh genesis water system so we're going to do a safe to fail trial with one of their cubes and could be a game changer you know if we can locate a plant of theirs at the top of a hill and fill a big tank and and reticulate from there i don't think you're going to get away from from pipe Just having a reliable source really high up on a mountaintop could be a game changer um, in a lot of landscapes in Australia and in the the West. So we're excited for a safe-to-fail trial there. But um, yeah, I think the technology has come a long way. We've we've put, you know, miles and miles of water pipe in, and I think that's the key. And uh, one of the benefits of having our operation, you know, nested in an investment structure is we can, you know, get a good reasonable idea of how much uh, water and wire is going to cost. Because let's let's be honest, that's one of the main limiting factors to this type of landscape function grazing. And we've gotten pretty good at installing both. And we can get some predictable measurements in terms of the cost of that, you know, and then uh, run our numbers in terms of, you know, sellable beef product or sheep product or whatever you're selling off of that. And, uh, and justify the cost pretty well. So we're, we're excited. Obviously, that's our, our whole investment thesis. But uh, I think uh, there, there's a lot of promise there for sure.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. And it seems that uh, everybody and their brother is working on different ways to implement various flavors of virtual fence right now. If we can get away from putting hard wire on the landscape, uh, which is a pretty recent phenomenon in terms of world history and the management of livestock, and and could manage animal distribution using something other than a physical fence. I think that combined with water availability would be would absolutely be uh, revolutionary.
2: So yeah, tip. I think time after time, you know, we've uh, identified that as kind of the number one barrier. That an animal, the correct animal phenotype, you know. So it's it's an infrastructure barrier and an animal barrier. So. If we can get smart, you know, we've set ourselves up, ourselves up as contractors that can come in and, and design your design your land and, and tell you where to put the water points and the water pipe and what size tanks you need. And you know, again we're doing this at scale and you know, we're we're managing sixteen thousand acres here. Graham's got a big lease over there, but he's got some clients that, you know, have five thousand cows and one mob, so we're kind of cracking the code on that. I've been down to Chihuahua to see the big ranches and how they're doing it. Went to Las Caretas ranch in Chihuahua uh, owned by Eduardo Rodriguez and amazing property that is doing holistic management grazing for over 20 years. But then last 10 have moved to higher density grazing with longer recovery periods and, and better animal phenotypes after they got uh, some good advice from Johann Zietzman and consulting. So um, yeah, again, I think it's, if we could fast track that and get a good investment models and get the banks to understand the payoff periods on these infrastructure installs and potentially a couple more technology breakthroughs like this Genesis water cube. Again, if that, uh, if that goes through, you know, could be a game changer for reticulation because again, it is expensive and you need to have a market for it, you know? So again, that's where the direct marketing piece comes in in terms of payoff. It definitely helps to direct market. You got to have a really, really big property for this infrastructure to pay itself back because you just got to have enough cows and be able to run, you know, enough cows with very low full time equivalents to to make it really, really sing. But if you got your own direct to consumer marketing, you can make it work with a smaller herd, which I know is most folks in the state. So that's probably what I just add to that to that conversation.
0: Yeah, thank you. I think it's really exciting. Uh, Graham, uh, just to kind of close out here, I, I feel like in the last I don't know 20 years we've moved from thinking about grazing in terms of how do we do no harm, more to you know what ecosystem improvements are possible uh, using grazing that that improves the plant community. Uh, so I want to let you have the final word here to to pull it all together, and then we'll I'll let you guys go great
1: thanks tip the um the only thing that I really wanted to say is there's more than one pathway to profit and typically um, and it seems to be a universal um, that we focus on increasing stocking rate or increasing production and what I've found is that I can give people more profit more money at bank biodiversity uh Carbon negative, sequestering more carbon than they emit through methane and all their fossil fuel use. But it's not at increased production. It's actually at focusing on profit rather than focusing on production. Our Australian government started, went from, it changed its focus from income to production in the uh, early 1950s. And now everything, the universities, the federal government, everything is about production, production, production. Even our resource economics unit in Australia focuses on the gross, not the net. So I think that we may have to reassess that, but that's not a very popular view. But, you know, like um, even though I probably are saying a few things different from Alan, Alan Savory is responsible for shifting this whole idea that, um, that, you know, that livestock um, can only do damage could because he'd actually seen them do the opposite. So I think it's essential that we learn to do that. And if we're going to have a, a future of the planet, we're going to have to restore all the grasslands and grassy woodlands um, of the world and start really focusing on making them uh, in certain areas in the, on the planet as the lungs of the earth will be the grasslands as well as we'll need, you know, the rainforests and all the other forests to be the lungs of the earth in those other areas. So yeah, so I, I think that it's incredibly exciting what we can do, and they're just restoring the health of, you know, the prairies and the grassland lands around the world.
0: I have to say I agree, and I think that's hopeful. Uh, Graham and Kevin, I really appreciate your time today, and I look forward to doing this again sometime. Thank you. All
1: right, thanks, Deb.
0: The views, thoughts and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.